People of God in Christ, several weeks ago, we made the point that the word rejection is uh, never used in a positive sense. This morning, we start by saying that the word feast is never used in a negative sense. There are some words that can be heard in uh, either a positive or a a negative sense. Uh, The word rejection is not one of them. And uh, we started uh, before with the word rejection, if you recall, because we were hearing the story of Joseph being seized by his brothers, thrown into a pit, and then sold into slavery because they hated him. Uh, But the further point, the deeper meaning of this story was the prefiguration that the story of Joseph's rejection provides for the rejection of Jesus. John 1.11 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Of course, the rejection that Jesus our Lord experienced was not just prefigured by the rejection of Joseph, but also by the rejection of each of the prophets of the Hebrew scriptures uh, that they experienced. So by way of the testimony of God's word, uh, as well as by our own experience with rejection, rejection is never a good thing. But this morning we have the opposite. This morning it will help us, I think, to start... Uh, to start out thinking about how the word feast is, is never used in a negative sense. Uh, rejection is always negative. Feast is always positive. Uh, if I invite you over to my house for a feast, the only person who might hear the invitation in a negative sense is my wife. <laughs> Although I can testify... I can testify that Mary's uh, de- definitely has the gift of hospitality, and she would she would figure it out. Uh, but even further, we need to we need to see on a on a biblical level that uh, that rejection and feast are also matched in God's word. There there is plenty of rejection in God's word, starting with our first parents being rejected from the Garden of Eden. Cain, who killed his brother Abel, was rejected by God and sent wandering upon the face of the earth, although receiving a significant degree of grace from God in in that punishment. The entire world was rejected by God in the great flood of Genesis 6, save Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. Even more, Abraham was accepted by God while Lot, his nephew, was rejected. Isaac was accepted by God while Ishmael was rejected. Jacob was accepted by God while Esau was rejected. And now we have the rejection of Joseph. We've seen in this story for a few weeks now, uh, despite the rejection of Joseph, yet now there is a feast to be told of. The passage before us this morning is the story of a feast, a feast given and provided even by Joseph himself 
And once again, we can't help but make the connection to Christ, our Savior. So the further starting point this morning is is to remind you that there is a feast in store for you. It's not at my house. And I speak to those of you who are believers in Christ, to those of you who have come to believe and to lay hold of the promises of the gospel. This is not a communion Sunday, but I can point out that every time we have the Lord's Supper here at Terre Haute Reformed Presbyterian Church, we do so upon the call and command of Christ who said, do this in remembrance of me. And he really said, until that day when we will feast with him in his father's kingdom. And Revelation 19 verse 9 gives us a picture of that great day when it says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Heaven itself, think about this. Be reminded of it, perhaps. Heaven itself is promised to us as believers in Christ as a feast, a a marriage supper, so that throughout Scripture, the theme, the, the picture, any joyful, godly reference to a feast must be understood as a foreshadowing of that great day. I'm hungry for it. Are you? If not, I hope I can make us a little more hungry by way of the passage before us this morning. First of all, a first point, another sacrifice. The theme, the idea of a sacrifice has been surfacing for us uh, in this story for several weeks now. Uh, Of course, it all started with Joseph being sacrificed in a way, his brothers rejecting him and selling him into slavery. But last time, we we noted a a whole series of sacrifices, at least sacrifices offered. First, there was a sad sacrifice. Kill my two sons if I do not bring Benjamin back to you alive, said the oldest son. Then Judah's frustrated sacrifice, we called it, in, in, in which he at least offered himself, yet with no certain outcome. Then Jacob's sacrifice, we called it a, a woeful sacrifice because it, it seemed to be made in despair and, and, and self-pity. And, and we used all these sacrifices to form the contrast with Christ's willing sacrifice for us, Sinners that we are, and and yet given to Christ by God the Father, so that He might suffer and die for us on the cross. Well, here is another sacrifice. Verse 16 reads, When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. I think the details given here are significant. The text doesn't say, prepare a meal for these men. Instead, it says first, bring the men into the house. If Joseph's brothers didn't suspect that something was going on by this point, uh, they must have been pretty slow. Uh, 
why would such a great ruler first accuse them of being spies, then when they returned and in, uh, then, then when they returned, he invited them into his house to eat a meal. Rulers don't generally entertain and spread a feast for men that they suspect as being their enemies. But that's what Joseph did. And, and more to the specific point of a sacrifice, he said, slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. We might remember where we are in the redemptive history uh, or within redemptive history at this point. The, the law of God has not yet been given, including God's command for animal sacrifice at the tabernacle and, and later the temple. But we have seen Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all offering sacrifice to God. You might even recall that the the first animal sacrifice was made by God himself at the start when he took the skins. That's really all it says. But God took the skins of animals and used them to clothe, to cover Adam and Eve in their sin. And that, of course, is what a sacrifice is. the, The death of one creature to cover another. And, and given that there was no specified law in place, we, we might ask, well, why did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all offer animal sacrifice to God? It seems that they just understood it. Uh, it's just like when, when you steal something, hopefully you don't do this, but if you were to steal something, you would know that you've done wrong and you would probably try to cover it up in in the same way. How do you approach? How How do you draw near to a holy God, knowing yourself to be a sinner? You somehow know that you need a sacrifice, a sacrifice to cover you. And we really can think the same way to some degree about the food we eat especially the meat that we eat, starting in Genesis 9, after the flood, as part of God's covenant with Noah, we hear God giving permission for man to eat or or to kill and eat animals. And to be sure, I think we would be naive to think mankind wasn't already eating the animals. Genesis 6, verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And thus the flood. But it's hard to imagine that people went about lying, cheating, stealing, fornicating, and committing adultery, but they didn't kill and eat meat. They were probably even killing and eating each other. Cannibalism. So what's the point of Genesis 9? The point is God giving permission for man to kill other creatures and to eat meat. And why give permission for something man was already doing? It sets up the theme, the idea, the the teaching of God's word regarding sacrifice. One animal dies while the other lives on. Even more, one creature dies so that another creature lives on. We see see the pattern throughout 
creation, uh, if you have the stomach for it, uh, just do a, a YouTube search for lions hunting or something like that. And, uh, and you'll get connected to a, a reality that began with the fall, but a reality that God even gave permission for, for man and for beast, after the great flood. And what's the point? To provide a picture, to give us understanding that death is part of creation and that sacrifice, which is to say death for the sake of life, is a part of a creation fallen in sin. And Joseph's brothers understand sin, don't they? Didn't they? They especially understood their own sin, which brings us to this second point, a a nagging guilt. Verse 18 records, And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we br- uh, that, that we are brought. It is for this reason that we are brought in, so that so that he may assault us and and fall upon us to make us servants and to seize our donkeys. Here's the problem with sacrifice. Here's the here's the problem with the offer of grace. Uh, here was Joseph by way of his actions treating his brothers graciously and yet they can only expect that he means them harm they don't even know at this point that that he is joseph that part of the story is yet to come and yet we've we've already heard how their sin against joseph in selling him into slavery was always with them always with them by way of a nagging guilt at this point it was a feeling of guilt because of the money they found returned to them in their grain sacks. But, but the point is to hear that, that there's this nagging guilt that will not let them go. And I would ask, how about you? Do you have a, a nagging guilt? And I think we all have it. Something bad happens and we are given to think, well, that's, that's because whatever, God is paying me back. The, the whole idea of karma is a formalized doctrine of divine payback. Of course, in, in Eastern religion, which uh, has brought karma into our culture, uh, in Eastern religion, God is reduced you know, just to a force, a uh, force. Um, something more like fate or, or even luck, as if the universe itself were God and exerts the force of payback. But the teaching of God's Word is, is that the universe is not God and, and that God is not an impersonal force exacting vengeance upon people for their wrongdoing. But that only makes things worse for us. God is a personal God. A God who does care about sin. A God who by his own nature and character defines sin by comparison to himself. Even as he is holy, we are thereby defined and identified as sinners. And like we've been saying, we just know it. So that we have this nagging conviction and feeling 
of guilt. And so we come to a third point, an attempted defense. Verse 19 reads, So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house. Again, why tell us this? Uh, Why does the text say that it was at the door of the house? It's clear that they were about to go in. Even more, they were about to be brought in. And you might expect such behavior, such a a strategy of self-defense, if they were being brought into a courtroom or if they were being brought into a dungeon. Think of a Think of a criminal being brought into court for sentencing. Uh, What pleas for mercy might you hear in that scene? But here are are Joseph's brothers being brought into the very house of Joseph. Must have been elaborate. Must have been wonderful in its its wealth and, and prosperity. But by way of a nagging guilt, they attempt a defense. Oh, my Lord, remember... They're talking to this servant of Joseph, the steward of the house, and they call him, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of a sack, our money in full weight. So we brought it back with us again, and we've brought other money that we can use to buy more food. We don't know who put the money in our sacks. But then here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. Granted, it's the gospel foreshadowed in much earlier events, but it's, it's a pronouncement, a, a declaration of good news for the brothers of Joseph. The steward said this, he said, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Aren't those wonderful words? How many times? How many times do we, do we hear our Lord saying these same words to his disciples and to us? Peace be with you. Be at peace. Don't be afraid. He even said, my peace I give you. And it's the Apostle Paul in in Romans 5 who explains what the words of Jesus mean when he says, peace be with you. He writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The problem is that we can't, we can't hardly comprehend it. Uh, okay, actually, we, we can't comprehend it at all. How in the world, how possibly can I, a sinner, find peace in the presence of a holy God? But this is the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus gives us peace. And how does Jesus give us peace? Does, uh, does he come and say, uh, oh, don't worry, God is, uh, God is not really the holy God that you fear him to be? No. Uh, does he come and say, uh, oh, yes, God is holy, but he doesn't expect you to be holy. Your sin doesn't really matter to him. Uh, does Jesus come and say, well, you're not so bad. So be at peace because you can always appeal to your goodness over and against your badness, your sin. No, Jesus comes and he says, peace be with you because of me, because I, 
am the Prince of Peace, because I have stepped into your place, into the mix, into the divine equation for you. I have obeyed the law of God. I have satisfied the just demands of what God requires. Even more, I have gone to the cross for you. Your punishment, the punishment for your sin, has been taken. It's been suffered. It's been satisfied. Peace be with you. This is why Jesus can say, peace be with you. Take this to heart. That anytime someone tells you, oh, don't worry, you better, you better know whether that person has any grounds, any authority to tell you, don't worry. And maybe it'll help a little to have someone say, oh, don't worry, peace be with you. Maybe your heart will listen to such platitudes and you'll be comforted. But what of your sin before a holy God? What about your nagging guilt? Peace be with you from whatever source might give you some peace for a time. But the peace that you really need is Christ. And not only and not just any Christ, but the Christ who has come in your flesh, who is both fully human and fully divine, who has lived a sinless life on your behalf and who has suffered hell in your place. That's the Christ who can give you peace. Only he can say to you, peace be with you and make it stick, make it count. Because each of us knows we are a sinner. Each of us can try to say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. But only Jesus, by his work, by his accomplishment, by what he has done for us, only Jesus can truly say for all eternity, peace be with you. And peace given to us by Christ is portrayed or conveyed and, and, and promised to us as a feast is spread. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. It is my body. And likewise, the cup, again giving thanks for it, Jesus told his disciples to divide it among themselves, also saying, Take and drink, it is my blood. The Lord's Supper is a feast because Christ has spread for us a feast. No, it, it doesn't fill your tummy, a piece of bread and a small drink of wine or juice, but it is meant to fill your soul. It is meant to give you peace on the basis of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And this is what we see um, of prefiguration in the feast that Joseph provided for his brothers. Again, remember the, the weird things going on here. If Joseph wanted to clobber his brothers, he would have hauled them off to a dungeon. 
A powerful ruler doesn't invite you into his house in order to arrest you and then haul you off to the dungeon. But Joseph invites his brothers in. And Joseph spreads a feast for them in his own house. He feeds them sumptuously. He treats them. He he blesses them. He feeds them. Because he's their savior. And Jesus does the same for us. Let's make it very personal at at this point. You come here this morning with a nagging guilt. You come here this morning ready to make excuses. Ready to explain away your sin. Ready to create for yourself a God who doesn't threaten you. You can try that. But it won't give you peace. The only thing that will give you peace is to hear and know and and lay hold of this truth that Jesus is your Savior, that that he was sold into slavery by his birth, that, that he suffered death and hell for you, that he rose again from the dead, and also that he might say to you, peace be with you. Since, since you have been justified by faith, You have peace with God through your Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the proof of it. It, The proof, if you will. I I don't know. Is it better to say the proof of it or the the demonstration of it? or, 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 Or is it the very reality of it? A feast has been spread for you. And so this final point, a good time was had by all. And that might sound kind of sordid, (laughs) like maybe it shouldn't be said in church. A good time was had by all. I wish we had time to deal with every last detail of the feast because there is so much here to consider. But until next time, the the last line of our text is, is striking. It's even scandalous. It says, and they, and they drank and were merry with him. The reference is to the brothers of Joseph, with Joseph, their brother. Remember that they, they don't even know at this point that it's, that it's Joseph, but it says this, and they, and they drank and were merry with him. And the, and the footnote in the ESV shows that the translators couldn't bring themselves to translate it literally. The footnote says they drank... And became intoxicated with him. Well, here I need to get squeamish, right? Uh, We all know that alcoholic beverage can be abused. uh, But this is the testimony of God's word that that a good time was had by all. It was a feast. It was was profuse in abundance. It was delicious and, and it was delightful. And a good time was had by all. And we need to remember this especially in our, in our use of alcohol now, uh, that the best is yet to come. There is a feast spread for us by Christ. We enjoy a taste of it now by faith in Christ as we receive his provision, his own body and blood for our salvation. We experience a foretaste of it now whenever we sit at the table of our Lord. Uh, but the fullness is yet to come. 
And hopefully we can, we can already taste it. What does the psalmist say? Taste and see that the Lord is good. The fullness of it, however, is yet to come. Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery. Joseph's brothers had come to Egypt with the, the, the simple hope to survive a famine. But what they found was peace. What they were given was something more than, than, than they could have imagined. They found Joseph alive, and they found a feast that he himself provided them, and they were blessed in abundance. And oh, that we could understand better and comprehend more fully what is in store for us. We, we, we cling to our sin for the momentary pleasure of it, but the best is yet to come. We live with a nagging guilt when, when we might look to Christ and know that we are at peace with God through him. We live now by the death of animals. But we live forever by the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us trust him. Let us enjoy him. And let us look to that great feast that heaven will be for us because of him. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, O God, over and over again for the the image of a feast given to us in your word. Sometimes it might seem like more of a passing comment But help us to see over all and through it all that the feast is our salvation and that our salvation will be fully realized in a great and glorious feast in the last day and even through all eternity. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for providing us your body and blood. Thank you for going to the cross for us. And thank you for your supper that we have as a sacrament. And grant by your spirit, Lord Jesus, that we would know about, remember, and anticipate that great feast that you have spread for us in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen.